Today's sermon is taken from John 11, verse 32 to 44. Read together with me in 3, 2, 1. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her so weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept, so the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an order, and he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his name and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Church, this word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. You can take a seat. Um, it's great to see you all. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, and thanks for, for reading along. I feel like this pulpit is an upgrade, Yoshi. Is this an upgrade? I don't remember if this was here last time. Really good. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really fantastic to be here. Um, I find it a really a privilege to be invited to, to share with you. And, you know, I, I was at the back praying with um, some of your leaders and uh, it was mentioned that, you know, it's like my family is, is part of the family. And, um, oh, there's my wife down there. And, and I re- we really feel that. Um, we really feel that. It, it is sometimes difficult to get here, all of us. I have, if you don't know me, my name's Jonathan. I have, my wife, Tani's at the back. We have three children. Lucia, who's eight. Otis is t- turning five. Lucia's turning eight. Otis is turning five. And Sullivan's just turned one. And it is a bit of a, you know, okay, everybody in the car, you know, there's there's drama and things happen. I'm not sure if everybody here has kids, but, you know, family life happens. And I'm like, coming along, going, like, maybe it would have been easier just to come myself. But the reality is, like, we really value you guys. You know, my, my kids, Otis, I told him this morning that, hey, we're going to go to Rock Church this afternoon. And he didn't want to go to our church this morning. He was like, when are we going to Rock? You know, that's what he was like. It's true. And um, we really, we value, there are brothers and sisters here, there are aunties and uncles, and, you know, we, we interact, you know, on occasions like this, but, but thank God for you. Um, this is a really special place, you know, I have, I have a lot of love for your pastor. You know, every church that you're involved in are going to have things that are great and things that are bothering you. We are people, um, but we are part of the kingdom of God, and we are brothers and sisters, and I'm really um, encouraged to be here. Um, I want to tell you just a, a little bit more about me um, to kind of lead into what we're going to be talking about uh, th- this afternoon. Um, I grew up in a bit of a Christian bubble. 
you could say. Um, my dad is a pastor. Um, some of you might know him. Um, I went to Christian schools, primary and, and secondary schools. I went to Christian schools. So it wasn't really until university that I started to um, have conversations with people that genuinely and really sincerely held views that were different from my own. And that prompted in me a desire to want to express my Christian faith in a way that's authentic, but also a way that was compelling, that wasn't just like, you know, this is true for me and might not be true for you. No, I wanted to be able to express it in a way that, that was compelling. I graduated from UTS, uh, University of Technology, Sydney, and the walk um, from Central Station, where I used, to, I used to get off the bus to Central Station, so the walk from Central Station to where the university campus was used to be really crowded. Obviously, this was, this was pre-COVID, and there used to be heaps and heaps and heaps of marketing students that would just be everywhere, and they'd try and stop you in the street. They, they, they always want to talk to you. They want you to sign a particular petition. They wanted you to donate to a particular charity. And in reality, they were practicing their marketing, but, but you know, they were trying to stop people and get people to sign up. And some of them were pretty aggressive about it. Um, so I used to negotiate with them. I'd say, hey, you know what? I'll let you talk for five minutes about how bad the government is or, or some particular charity that you want me to listen to, to you talk about. I'll let you talk for five minutes. But then for five minutes, you have to let me talk to you about Jesus. Right? That's what I used to say. And it's a really great way to kind of be left alone while you walk to university or sometimes to be really late for class because people want to have a big conversation. Um, kind of both would happen. And that slowly for me progressed into other things. Like when I was working, I used to leave work on my lunch break and go to the park, um, Hyde Park in the city, and go looking for Jehovah's Witnesses to talk to. To, to, to debate and to, and, to, and, to, and to find out what they believe. I just found it really interesting talking to them about what, what they believed, what were the implications of that, why did they believe it, how was it different from what I believed and where does that, those things come from. It kind of progressed into that. And, and actually, I remember going on holiday. Me and, me and Tani did a, like a cliche kind of Europe trip and we were in London for a period of time and I've got this really vivid memory of going to Speaker's Corner. Um, in, in Hyde Park in London. And for, for those that don't know what that is, it's a part of the city in London where once a month, it was on a Sunday, people could come together and they could debate topics. They could stand on a soapbox and, and it's essentially this big gathering of people all debating and arguing about stuff with each other. And usually it's on topics of religion, politics, philosophy. And we were there um, on this particular Sunday, so we went and, and listened in. And I remember listening to this Muslim man, and he was debating a Christian man who was there about the nature of the, of the Trinity. He was essentially talking about the Christian God and, and debating this Christian man. And he's saying things like, you know, if Jesus is God, then who is he praying to when he's praying? Like, you're Jesus. He goes around talking to himself. What a strange God that you have. You, you can't believe this. You, you know, your, your Jesus talks to himself. And it's pretty crowded. I'm, I'm kind of pushing in a bit closer because there's heaps of people talking about all sorts of things. I'm pushing in a bit closer um, to try and hear him when this Muslim man kind of invites me into the conversation, um, which is interesting. The only problem was that he also just assumed that I was also Muslim. I think it was kind of the beard and my hair. I kind of looked a bit Muslim. And he's like, brother, brother, you agree with me, don't you? Tell, tell this Christian man that what he believes is nonsense. Tell him. So I kind of pretended to be converted to Christianity. I was like, oh, actually, what he's saying sounds great. And, and, so, and so the guy was a little bit thrown because I looked like a Muslim and yet I was professing what the Christian man um, was saying that day. You know, I guess to be clear, these are probably not the, the best ways. Um, it's, not, it's probably not the best way of arguing with people in the street. It's not, it's not the best way of, of preaching the gospel, probably. Probably. Um, 
But I do really think that it's important for Christians to really understand what they believe, to be able to articulate their worldview, their belief, the way they see and interpret the world. It's important to know what it is and to be able to, to articulate it. Um, since, you know, with, with, with COVID and, and the way the world's changed, I've been working from home a lot more than, than I used to, which is really awesome because I have opportunities to take Lucia, my daughter, she's in U2, I have opportunities to take her to school, drive her to school instead of commuting into the city because I'm working from home. Um, so it's really been awesome to have some one-on-one -on -one time with her in the car just to chat about things. And she asked me a question fairly recently. And, and for Lucia, you know it's going to be a big question because she, she'll preface what she's about to say. Um, and so she's like, Dad, I know this isn't true, but you know how people, you know how we believe in God? Well, other people seem to believe in other gods. What happens, Dad, if, if the God that we believe in is not true and, 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 and someone else's God is, is true? What, what happens if, you know, I know that's not true, but what happens if our God is not true and, and, and their God is true? I think that's a really good question, isn't it? I mean, she's seven. It's a good question. And there's probably lots of ways that I could respond to her question and, and, and talk to her and, uh, about that. But regardless of whatever approach or whatever I try and say, I want to encourage her to be the type of girl, especially in, with, it, with her Christian faith, that asks questions. I don't want to shut down her questions and, and just tell her, hey, you know what, Lucia, it's just true. It's just true. No more questions. That's, that's not what I want to do. I want to build her confidence in the Christian faith. And she needs to be told about evidence. She needs to be shown that the Christian faith is reliable. I don't want to be someone that hides other worldviews from my daughter and try and like, fence her in and, and protect her from other worldviews. Because you know what? Other worldviews have to provide answers to the same questions that people pose to Christianity. If they're not immune to them, like they have to provide an answer as well. And hopefully, in the end, by my, my daughter asking those sort of questions she'll, and, and looking at evidence, she'll come to a conviction of the Christian faith that she'll, she'll come to her own conviction that, that the Christian faith provides the most satisfying answers to those types of questions, to big questions. And if you're a person of, of faith here, if you're a person of the Christian faith, faith can, I, can I encourage you, you know, don't run away from difficult questions. Don't be afraid of them. The Christian faith, it can stand up to scrutiny. It, it can be questioned and it can stand up. The Bible commands us to love the Lord God, not just with our heart, but with all of our soul, with all of our mind and with all of our strength. You know, all of us. And it can, we can engage the intellect in doing that as well. Um, and so that's what I wanted to do with, with us here that are gathered together at Rock, at Rock Church um, this evening. We're going to confront a big question. We're going to think about a big question and, and how does the Christian faith respond to it? It's a question that will torpedo many people's faith. It has torpedoed many people's faith. Um, and the question is, how can God allow suffering? How can the Christian God allow suffering? Look around at all the suffering, all the pain that exists in the world. How could a loving God that Christians profess, how could he allow that to happen? Um, Tim Keller, who I, who I know your, your pastor is a big fan of, he, um, he puts the argument like this um, against Christianity on the basis of suffering. This is how he frames it. I've got a quote up for you. It says, if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be good, but he's not all powerful. On the other hand, if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he could stop it and yet he won't stop it, then he might be all powerful, but he's not good. Either way, the good 
all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. Now, on the surface, that seems like a really big problem, really huge problem for Christianity, doesn't it? Our God cannot, does not exist, right? Big, big challenge, big problem. And this, this evening, what we're going to do, we're going to use our reading uh, from John, John 11. And, and actually, just as a side note, um, when, I, when I wrote this message, I just included all of John 11. So if you're going like, to think about this after tonight, go and read the entire chapter of John 11. Uh, we'll skim through it a little bit tonight. Um, but we're going to use that reading as a bit of a structure to kind of guide us and to help us think about this question. Um, and one thing I really wanted to say up front is this message that I've, I've worked through and, and I've thought about. It's kind of built on the back of, of other Christian writers, other Christian thinkers. I think when it comes to apologetics, which is kind of this kind of question and providing a defense to it, that we, we call that apologetics. When it comes to that, you really want to be well-read. You don't want to be like hitting these, these questions just and, and then think you have to come up with your own unique you know, answer to them, right? We, we want to build on what other Christian thinkers have thought. Um, so when it comes to that, I've, I've got a bit of a book recommendation for you. I've got a slide that shows you what it is. It's called Confronting Christianity. It's 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest uh, Religion. It's, it's written by a lady. Her name is Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, she used to be from the UK. I think she now lives in the States. Um, but she's great. I'm a, I'm a massive fan of hers. She's, she's very smart, very articulate. Um, if you, you know, follow the Gospel Coalition or anything like that, sometimes she shows up on their Instagram feed. Um, so big fan of her. And this thread that I'm following through John chapter 11, it's kind of inspired by one of the chapters in this book. So if you're interested in, in this, um, there is a book for you to think about. All right, let's just read the first three verses um, of John 11. So not, not in the reading, but if you've got a Bible, um, and I'll put it up on a slide for you. But it says, John uh, 11, chapter 1, it sa- uh, verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her, and, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. The topic of suffering, and we're talking about how can God allow suffering, the topic of suffering, it's huge, right? There's this huge spectrum of what we would agree and describe as, as types of suffering. When Tani and I, Tani, my wife, when, when we were first um, dating, when we were courting, she invited me around to her house uh, for dinner with, with her parents, and she was going to um, cook us a meal. So I nervously arrived at the house. You know, you want to make a good impression. This was my first time kind of arri- essentially meet the parents, right? Um, so I'm a bit nervous, and um, I arrive, and, and she'd cooked a green curry for dinner. Now, let me explain. I'm totally fine with spicy food. You know, my Asian friends, they always com- often comment and say, like, wow, you're fine with spicy. Is that too hot? I'm like, no. Some of you have seen my son eat. He's, he's kind of also okay uh, with spicy food. But I tell you what, this has got to be the hottest thing I've ever eaten in my life. Like, I was suffering. It was bad. And I wanted to make a good impression, right? So I'm just thinking to myself, just keep putting it in your mouth. You know, don't, don't, don't worry about the sweat. Just... In it goes, you know, we're going to be fine. I'll tell you what, about 24 hours later, I was suffering as well. It was <laughs> terrible. It, it was so bad. And, and you know, that, that, that's a mild, you know, example of what we'd agree is, is a form of suffering, right? But when we consider the human experience of suffering, it ramps up pretty fast uh, from there, doesn't it? What about suffering caused by war? You know, you think about the wars going on around the world and the, and the trauma and the hurt and the pain and the death that people are experiencing. What about that? What about, you know, natural disasters like tsunamis that wipe out 
huge cities and, and, and villages and things and the, and the loss of life that people experience. What about, you know, about the, there's 2,000 children that die every day because they don't have access to clean drinking water and sanitation. 2,000 a day. What about their parents, right, experiencing that, not, not feeling like they can provide clean water and, and, and children dying? Like, it ramps up so quickly. What about death, pain and death caused by cancer or the grief that you experience when you lose a, a loved one suddenly? Suffering, violence, death. Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, he, he looks out on all of this, suffering and pain, and he declares that our world, he says, has precisely the properties we should expect if, at bottom, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. He looks out on all he sees in the pain of the world and just says that's how it would be if there was no purpose, no design, no evil, no good, just indifference. And perhaps he's right. Perhaps he's got it right. Perhaps like Lucia asked me, something else is true and we've got it wrong. And rather than run away from that question, um, I wanted to tonight with you consider kind of three broad worldviews. Three broad narratives or stories that we can tell ourselves to try and make sense of the suffering that we see. Um, and we're going to consider three of them. So the three we're going to consider is suffering without God. There is no God. We, you know, obviously, we'd call that atheism. The second one we'll consider is, what about suffering from a Buddhist perspective? You know, what about another religion like, like, like Buddhism? How does that make sense of suffering? And then the third one we're going to look at is suffering from a Christian worldview. So we're going to spend a really brief amount of time with the first two. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased, and, and I think there's more value in, in us kind of dwelling with the third tonight. So that's what we're going to do. Um, okay, well, let's start with the first one then. Suffering um, from an atheist perspective. Initially, I think this worldview, and some of us w will be able to relate to this, it offers some relief. Because you can stop trying to find meaning in things, because there isn't any. Suffering happens, make your own meaning out of it. Give your own meaning to pain and suffering. I'm mature, I'm scientific. I don't need to believe in made-up stories in order to feel better about my pain. Here's something I think we should consider, or I'm going to put out there, about science, because atheism and, and, and that is often linked with like a scientific view of the world. I think a scientific or a materialistic worldview, it really can only provide explanations for things in ways that are also scientific. How do you express meaning how do you express purpose in scientific language? How do you ex express that in a way that sounds scientific? A man named John Lennox, he's a really well-known mathematician, so he is a scientist. Um, he's also a fairly well-known apologist, um, and he does public debates, or has done public debates, with people like Richard Dawkins and, and other atheists. Um, he has this awesome analogy that I wanted to share with you. I didn't put it on a slide because it's quite long, um, but I'll, I'll read it to you. He has this great analogy. He says, imagine that Aunt Matilda has made a cake. Now, he's British, right? So Aunt Matilda. We none of us probably in the room have an Aunt Matilda. You can think of your Aunt, Aunt Sue. I don't know what, what your Aunt's name is. But um, imagine that she has made a cake. And she has made it for a particular purpose. Now, there are lots of things that scientists could tell us about the cake. Nutrition scientists can tell us about the number of calories in the cake and its nutritional effect. Biochemists can tell us about the structure of the proteins and the fats. Chemists can tell us about the elements involved and their bonding. Physicists can analyze the cake in terms of fundamental particles. Mathematicians can come up with a beautiful set of equations to describe the behavior of those particles. But does that satisfy all our questions? 
Yes, we know how the cake was put together. We know all about its parts and the way they relate to each other. No higher power told us any of that. Science did. But, but can our scientists tell us why the cake was made? Only the maker, in this case Aunt Matilda, Aunt Sue, knows. And until she reveals that information to us, no amount of scientific genius will be able to discover it. See, atheism, it solves the problem of suffering by just taking any meaning out of it. It just removes the meaning from it and says, there we go, no problems with suffering anymore. You can't provide a scientific answer to, to, as to why people suffer. You might be able to say how people suffer or what people suffer from, but you can't explain why. What's the problem with this? Why, is that, why does that matter? Well, humans, we cling to whys. It gives our lives meaning, it gives our lives purpose, and it's interesting to consider that many people who reject the idea of God and say there is no God, they'll still cling to this idea that things happen for a reason, right? They'll still tell you about it. You might, um, that, that there's some sort of universal meaning. Maybe you've, you've had that sort of conversation with, with somebody before, you know, a, a non-religious friend who rejects the idea of a God who loves you, um, but will still tell you that the universe has some sort of plan. Because in an atheist worldview, we suffer. There is no design. There is no purpose. There is no evil. There is no good. There is only indifference. But I want to propose to you this evening, what, ha what about, what if, right? What if that yearning inside of us, that, that yearning for why, that yearning for meaning, what if it's not the outcome of evolutionary processes like, like atheists will kind of suggest to us, but they're actually signposts? It's a very famous quote by C.S. Lewis, who's talking about this exact same idea of, of like, what about that, that, that signpost of why? Like, why is, where's the meaning in my life? He writes this, he says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Hey, I reckon we could go on and on and on kind of critiquing and, and thinking about this worldview, like this way of seeing the world and, and trying to understand suffering. Um, but I want to kind of contrast to one more worldview before we look at the Christian one. So the second one then was going to be suffering from a Buddhist perspective. Um, let's, let's, look at it, let's think about suffering through that lens for a minute. Now, I have to admit to you, I've never been a practicing Buddhist. Um, so my understanding of it might be a little bit skewed. This is just me kind of looking from the outside in. Um, but the, when, when I looked into it, when I tried to do some research, I, I found that the accounts of the kind of initial Buddha story, they kind of varied from source to source. But this is the best paraphrase um, that I could come up with. I'm, I'm just going to read it to you. Um, it says that the man that became the first Buddha was a prince. His father, wanting to protect him, did everything he could to keep him happy. Growing bored of the palace, the prince persuaded his father to let him go out in his chariot. Meeting an old man, the prince discovered that everyone ages. The next day, the prince met a sick man and discovered disease. On the third day, the prince saw a corpse and learned to his horror that everyone dies. The prince left his palace and entered the forest to begin his journey to enlightenment. When he emerged, he proclaimed that life is suffering and the only way to escape it is to remove the attachments that bind us to life. So the main principle of, of Buddhism, is, as far as I could understand it, right, and again, looking out, outside looking in, is that people want to hold on to their life. People want to hold on to their health. People want to hold on to their possessions. But 
Life, health, and possessions will pass away. You know, these things are not eternal. Our desires will always ultimately disappoint us. The things we desire will always ultimately be disappointing, and that is what causes human suffering, our desires, our, our holding on to life, health, possessions. So if you can kill your desires, if you can get rid of your desires, and you can be unaffected by good or evil, then suffering will cease and you will be happy. Right? That is the lens, as far as I can understand it, in, in which a, a Buddhist would, would see suffering and interpret it. And you know what? I feel like I can understand the allure of that. that, that I, can, I can get that. Because if you, re- if you reject the idea of God, right? you, you also land like an atheist and, and believe there is no God, um, but you find that the conclusions that they come to then to be bleak and meaningless, then Buddhism will offer you an alternative without any restrictions of organized religion. So there's no specifics that you have to follow, like with Christianity or, or, or Islam or something like that. Um, and where atheism will tell you that, that there's... There is no meaning to suffering. Buddhism will say, hey, you can escape it. You can get away from suffering. I think that's a pretty attractive offer. A worldview that requires little from me and, offers to, and promises and offers to make my life uh, less painful. When I was originally writing this sermon a, a little while ago, it was a, a few months ago now, we got news. Um, Sul- Sullivan, my youngest kid, um, I think he was about seven months at the time, um, was quite sick, and, and we got news in the middle of the night that, that he had contracted COVID. Now, no one in our home had had COVID yet, and he had not even been sick before. Um, so his, his first sickness was, was literally coronavirus, and he was miserable. You know, he, he couldn't sleep, he had a raging fever, his breathing was really noisy. Tiny spent the next morning and, and day um, at the emergency department just to kind of get him checked out and make sure that he was doing all right. And I have to be honest with you tonight, right? There have been times when I've been anxious about one of my children and I've just thought to myself, you know what? If I'd never had kids, I wouldn't be so stressed out right now. I wouldn't be laying, them, laying next to them in the middle of the night kind of hoping and praying that their fever will come down, um, that they'll be able to sleep. Or there's been times where I've been really challenged at work and stressed by a deadline or something and just thought, you know what? If I just quit, if I just walk out that door, all of this goes away. I don't have to deal with any of it. The Buddhist narrative, it tells us that suffering is caused by desire, by striving, by attachment. And if you get rid of those things, you can have some peace. You know what the challenge I have with this worldview is? It's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? You know, you can't remove attachment without also removing all the meaning and joy that come from that attachment. To love is to be vulnerable. Isn't it? To strive for something is to risk being disappointed. And is it true that the suffering caused by loving my children can really only be solved by not loving them anymore? Right? Is, that, is that what I have to come to accept? It's a pretty different picture from what we get from the Bible, isn't it? That, that kind of lens, that view of, of suffering. The commandment we get in the Bible is to love God. Love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and to love our neighbours as ourselves. Right? That's, that's the commandment we get from the Bible. It, it's different. All right, I want to consider the Christian worldview then, because we, you know, there's two to compare to, and let's land in the Christian one for a while. Um, how can the God that Christians worship, how can he allow suffering? If there is a God, and it's the one that Christians say that he is, how can he let suffering happen? I think the theologians have spent a lot of time right, thinking through this, trying to reconcile suffering with the existence of a loving and caring and powerful God. But rather than go through kind of all the philosophical arguments of that, I wanted to look at an example of suffering in the Bible 
and see how Jesus responds to it. Surely, like, a good way of, of, of seeing suffering from a Christian worldview is to, is to look at Christ, right? So that's what we're going to do. So let's go back to our um, John 11. I'm going to jump to verse 5 now, 5 and 6. John 11, 5 and 6. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So we have some bad news and we have some good news. The bad news is Lazarus is sick. Like he's, he's really sick, not, not like just a bit sick. He, he's, he's close to death sick. And the good news is that Mary and Martha, they know a miracle-working son of God. So they call for Jesus to come. Which is why when you read this, verse 6 is a little bit confusing and a little bit strange. Verse 5 establishes that Jesus loves these three siblings. He loves them. But verse 6 tells us that when Jesus hears that his friend is sick, he delays. He stays where he is for another couple of days. And if you know anything about Jesus, he heals people. It's what he does. He heals strangers. He even knows how to heal people kind of long distance, right? He doesn't even have to go there. But this time, when some of his closest friends need him and call for help, he doesn't come. And I think this is the first thing we have to grapple with when, when it comes to the Christian worldview of suffering. Sometimes we call for Jesus in the face of suffering and pain, and he doesn't come. Or at least he doesn't come in the way we are expecting him to come. Sometimes belief in an all-powerful God who loves us can make suffering seem a little bit worse. Jesus could have come. He could have come when Mary and Martha called, but he didn't. And Mary and Martha, they suffer and, and grieve through the death of their brother, because Jesus didn't come. Hey, I'm not really selling this worldview, am I? Should we go back to the Buddhist one? <laughs> Just stay there. It's like, no more pain? Um, you know, anyway. Let's look at verse 21 and 22. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. If you had been here, you kind of get the sense that Martha is maybe a little bit disappointed, uh, you know, a bit frustrated with Jesus. I would be. You know, hey, Jesus, I've seen you heal person after person after person. Hey, Jesus, sometimes people even sneak up behind you and touch the hem of your garden, of your garment, and, and, and you heal them, right? You why, what's going on? When my brother needed you, where were you? Why didn't you come? How does Jesus respond to Martha? Verse 23 and 24, it says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Hey, when we read this scripture, we, we kind of know already that Jesus will, will, will raise Lazarus. But Mary and Martha didn't know that. So when, when Jesus says in verse 23, hey, your brother will rise again, Martha isn't necessarily relieved. She's like, oh, she's not thinking, oh, great, we'll come this way and my brother will rise again. Um, she's thinking of that Jesus is referring to some sort of end-time resurrection that she would have believed about um, being a Jew. And if you put her, yourself in her shoes, look, her brother has just died. He will rise again. Okay, yes, I have this hope for the future that he will rise again at some future time. But what about now, Jesus? What about now? Why wouldn't you help me now? If you, didn't, if you just come when I called you... Like we get, you know, if you just if you just come, I wouldn't have been, in, I won't be in so much pain. I wouldn't be in this situation. You know what? The Christian worldview it doesn't promise a life without any pain. It doesn't promise a life without any suffering. It also doesn't sometimes offer an explanation for why we are experiencing suffering and pain. But it does offer us something. It offers us hope. 
And not in, a, not in the kind of like way out in there in the distance, like the hope that, yeah, we will, you know, be with him in the end. It offers a today sort of hope, a, a, a today kind of hope. Rebecca, in, in the book that I referenced, in, in Confronting Christianity, she writes about this, uh, which I really found helpful. And, and she wrote, In this moment, Martha stands where many Christians stand when we face suffering. We have ultimate promises. One day Jesus will return, put the world to rights. But we are much more like children than philosophers. Our pain is real and it's urgent. It refuses to be soothed by faraway hope. Neat theological answers will not do but neither are they all that Christianity offers. Let's look at the next uh, three verses, 25, 26, and 27. So verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now here's something to say that here's something that sounds weird to say out loud in a church like this, but I will I will say it anyway. Jesus is responsible for Mary and Martha's suffering, kind of question mark, maybe Jesus is responsible, maybe to soften it a little bit. Jesus allowed Mary and Martha to suffer unnecessarily. Cuz why why if Jesus planned to heal Lazarus? Did he not just do it? In the first place, why did he let Lazarus die and then leave Mary and Martha mourning for, for days? And then why not tell the sisters what he was about to do? You know what? We're not completely foreign to the idea of, of allowing a small amount of suffering in order to avoid some sort of and prevent some sort of greater suffering in the future, are we? Hey, the first time, and some of us have experienced this, you take your four month old baby to the doctors to get their vaccination. You know, they're so trusting, they're so happy, they're usually pretty fat, they're like, oh, this is great, we're going on an excursion, right up until the time when the nurse does that short, a short sharp sting, like into a leg, right? The look of betrayal on their eyes, like, what have you done? And it's usually these days, it's not just one, it's like both legs and an arm, right? There's, it's, there's a lot going on, you know? But we're not, we're not foreign to that idea of, of a small amount of suffering in order to prevent a larger one. The question I think we need to answer as Christians is, and that we should ask about suffering is, what could be worth it? Why is, why is experiencing this suffering worth it? Why should we endure it? Why should we do that? And the Christian, we have an answer for that. The answer to that question of why we should endure it, it's Christ himself. He, he is the reason we should endure suffering. In verse 25, Jesus makes this claim, that, and he says that he is the resurrected life. Not that he offers good teaching about a life with less suffering, he claims to be life itself. Yeah. And we see, we see here, right, this is the key distinction between a Christian worldview and maybe some of the others we were looking at, where an atheist will look at suffering and say there is no meaning for it. Yeah. Where, the, a, where a Buddhist will say that, hey, you know what, less attachment, that's the answer to suffering. Christ instead says he is the only answer to those things. Yeah. Atheist says there's no meaning for suffering. Christ says he's the only meaning. Where a Buddha says there's less attachment is the answer, Christ says attachment to him is the only answer to it. Hey, the atheist looks at Mary and Martha and says, you know what, there is no meaning and purpose to your pain, right? Just indifferent. 
make your own meaning out of it. The Buddhist looks at Mary and Martha and says, you know what, if you were just not so attached to your brother, you would not be in as much pain as you are in right now. But Christ looks at Mary and Martha and tells her, tells them that their biggest need is not to have your brother back. That is not your biggest need. It's instead to have Christ himself for them to experience resurrected life. That's their biggest need. Hey, Jesus delayed coming. Mary and Martha, they suffer through the death of their brother. Remember the classic objection that I shared at the beginning? Timothy Keller um, summarized it for us. Either your God isn't loving or he's not powerful enough to do anything. And, and you know what? Maybe some of Mary and Martha's friends felt the same way. I'm not going to read it, but, but if you go and look at verse 37, right? There's, there's kind of a hint that they're kind of suggesting that. But you know what? We have to hang on. We have to hang on to the end of this story. We can't kind of stop here and, and make conclusions. There's still really two really big important things that are going to happen uh, in this reading, in this narrative, this uh, recount of Scripture. Let's look at verse uh, 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Come, Lord, uh, Lord come and see. Jesus wept. Verse 35, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, and it's also a big favorite of mine because as a child, I was paid to memorize scripture by my dad, and this was easy money. This was like the first one, and like, all right, let's bank that straight away. It's the shortest verse, but it's also one of the most important because it gives us some insight into what the Christian God is like. When Jesus sees Mary weeping, he weeps. It's not just a sympathy, I feel sorry for you. He feels her pain. And what's mind-blowing for me is that Jesus delayed coming. He could have avoided all of this, and yet he chooses to, experiencing that, to experience that pain and that suffering with Mary and Martha. The Gospels are full of examples of Jesus showing compassion for those that are suffering. Uh, when you think of Isaiah, uh, I think it's chapter 53, it describes Christ as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Hey, the Christian God is not far away. He's not a faraway deity kind of looking down on his creation, watching all this suffering happening, like kind of Greek mythology style. Instead, the Christian God, he enters into creation and experiences suffering with us and for us, ultimately experiencing suffering in a way that we could just never truly understand on the cross on our behalf. One of my favorite musicians, um, his name is uh, John Mark McMillan. Uh, some of you might know some of his work, but he, he writes about the truth of, of, of this in a song. Uh, he calls it The Road, the Rocks, and the Weeds. And essentially what he's doing is he's contrasting the Christian God with the gods that you know, people would have um, thought about in Greek mythology, like the, the Greek mythology gods. Um, I want to read some of his lyrics too because they, they resonated with me. He writes, Come down from your mountain, your high-rise apartment, and tell me of the God you know who bleeds. And what to tell my daughter when she asks so many questions and I fail to feel her heaviness with peace. When I've got no answers for hurt knees or cancers, but a saviour who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye Olympus, the heart of my maker is spread out on the roads, the rocks and the weeds. And Aphrodite would not weep, nor Zeus would suffer for the weak, but have you come to stand inside my pain? Our final verses that we're going to look at um, this afternoon are, are verse 43 and 44. 43 says, When he had said these things, he cried out in a, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Hey, I, I touched on this idea just a little bit ago, that if, you, if this is where you stopped, or, you know, and stopped reading the story at Mary and Martha's grief, if that's where you stopped and kind of closed the book and demanded an explanation about the Christian worldview, like, tell me why God would allow suffering, maybe even in some cases like seem to cause suffering, then it would be really difficult to provide any kind of defense, right? If that's where you stopped, when Lazarus was died and Jesus delayed coming, and you said, tell me why, right? It would be, it'd be hard. But we have to read all the way to the end of the story. There's two more important things that happen in our story. The first one is that Jesus weeps with us. We saw that in verse 35. And this, the second is here. He ultimately brings suffering to an end. We see this in verse 43, 44. When, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. Hey, in this moment of authority, Mary and Martha's suffering is brought to an end. It's done. Their, their brother is restored to them. You know what? The challenge for us as Christians, right, living out this narrative, living out this worldview, is that we kind of live in that same space. It's the space between the death of Lazarus and Jesus calling him out of the tomb. Right? That's kind of where we're living. It's the space where we're going to experience pain, where we're going to experience grief, where we're going to experience suffering, and sometimes not really have a good explanation for it. But it's also the space which we get to learn to see Jesus for who he really is, right? Mary and Martha thought that the re restoration of their brother was what they needed, and Jesus stood in the gap and said, but you need to experience resurrected life. We get to see him for who he really is, the resurrection and the life. Mary and Martha, as I said, stood in the grief. They felt like, I just need my brother back. That's all I need for my life, right? I just need Lazarus back. But Jesus stood before them in their suffering and pain and declared that he was their life, that he is the resurrection and the life. Hey, we have to hold on to the end of the story, right? You have to read the whole chapter, um, John, John 11. And you know what? We also have to hold on to the end of our story, yeah. right? We can't stop halfway and, go and demand an explanation, right? We have to allow it to meet its, its final conclusion. You know what? Everybody in this room is going to experience the pains of death. You know what the great news of verse 43 is? is that as Christians, we have a hope that one day when our bodies have decayed, when our lives are mostly forgotten, that Jesus will call us out of our graves. Not to, you know, not to uh, experience heaven in the way that we think, kind of floating around in the, in the clouds, but to experience what he describes as resurrected life, right? To be restored, to be brought back to life. So which story, I would ask you, is, is most compelling? You know, there, there were three that I kind of presented a little bit. First one is, there is no meaning to your suffering, which is the atheist narrative, right? It's the, it's the atheist story that we can try and use to make sense. There is no meaning to your suffering. The second one is, hey, your attachment is the cause of your suffering, which is, which is the Buddhist narrative. Or, you know, there is meaning, there is hope in our suffering, and his name is Jesus Christ. Right? Those, those are three, three options that I'm, I'm presenting that we can use to make sense of suffering. And there's probably three groups of people here as well um, that I hope this message kind of makes you think, maybe confronts you a little bit. And, and first, it might be people that are here that are currently suffering, currently experiencing pain and grief and loss and challenges. And I'm really sorry, I can't provide a great explanation for you for, for why you're going through what you're going through. 
But I hope I've encouraged you. You know, there is meaning to be found and there is hope to endure it. And it's found in Jesus. You have to hold on to the end of the story. The second one is, is maybe it's some people in here that hold an alternative worldview to the one that I'm describing, the Christian worldview. You know what? I hope this message kind of helps you think through what you believe and what Christians believe around suffering and perhaps, you know, maybe consider the Christian one for the first time. And third, for the Christians in the room, which I assume is, is most of us, for those that hold to a Christian faith, um, you know, I hope, I hope this kind of encourages you to, to be confident in your worldview, to be confident in your faith, because it can hold up to scrutiny. It really can. It can hold up to questions. I hope you feel a little bit more confident to defend it, to engage in conversations with people that maybe don't hold the same view of the world that you do. Maybe I'll see you wandering around Hyde Park with me one day. Who knows? Um, you know what? The Christian worldview, it gives us a story that doesn't try to necessarily explain how suffering happens or why suffering happens, but points us to a God who experiences it with us and for us. Jesus wept, he, and it promises us a future in which he has conquered suffering. Yeah. Lazarus, come out. Hey, it's a better story. I think it's the best story. Yeah. Can I pray for us? Let me do that. Heavenly Father, hey, what a, what a privilege, Lord, to, to just stand uh, here um, and, and, and share from your word, to look at John 11, to consider how you, 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 you point us to truth in your word, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to consider maybe other narratives that we hear in the, in the experiences that we have in life, people that hold other perspectives, Lord, to be able to think through those. What are the implications of that? And then ultimately to come back to the truth of your word, Father, and to know what we stand on. Thank you that we can have confidence in it. Thank you, uh, Jesus, that you weep with us, that you're experiencing, you, you are not foreign to suffering. You've experienced it with us and you experience it for us. And ultimately, you promise us a hope and a future that puts it, brings it to an end. Thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to be confident in it and to know that you're always with us. Amen. <laughs>